morning. If you have your Bibles, would you meet me in Psalm 42? Uh, Psalm 42 is where we will be in God's Word together. And while you're turning there, I just want to share with you. It's been uh, it's been hard uh, writing this message. Um, I don't know if I've shed tears over a sermon more than this one. Uh, I'm not okay. Uh, we're not okay. This season has been a tragic one. I've come face to face uh, with many miserable things, uh, not just this week, but the last couple months, years, uh, and I feel the, the heaviness of it. Facing the murder of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and the list is innumerable dating back to the very founding of this nation. And people want to talk about racism as history, but for something to be history, it has to be in the past, not also in the present. Facing the front page of the New York Times were a thousand names of 100,000 lives lost to the coronavirus, people with families and loved ones facing the news of millions of children lacking food at least three times more than in the Great Depression. Facing xenophobia towards my Asian and Asian American brothers and sisters, facing the rising number of domestic violence cases, child abuse cases, suicide rates in the midst of stay-at-home orders, facing marriage struggling, issues, families falling apart, an economic crisis, a mental health crisis, a physical health crisis, the list goes on. It's heavy. And as I stand face to face with all of these things and more, a question rises up in me. What does it look like to be miserable in a godly way. I don't know if you've ever asked a question like that, but what does godly misery look like? I'd imagine for some of you, you immediately react against that. Um, maybe you've adopted a, a positivity gospel, which is an offshoot of the prosperity gospel that says Christians are supposed to be happy. And if you're not happy, you just need more faith. And if you have more faith, then you'll always be happy. That marks much of what we hear on Christian radio. That's not Bible. Or maybe you are miserable and you feel so alone. And your experience of the church is for, in order for me to be with these people, in order for me to be in this fellowship, I have to hide away my pain. I have to push it aside because Christians aren't supposed to show their misery. That's not Bible either. We live in a broken world. 
that broken world shows its cracks and we feel it. And we who are God's people, we more deeply feel those cracks as we understand the image of God, the justice of God, and the shalom of God. If you're tuning with us for the first time here, we've been walking through the book of Psalms. The Psalms are a powerful collection of songs that are prayed to God. These Psalms, they span the full range of emotions in the human experience. And one of the most prominent of them is what we might call grief, suffering, sorrow, misery. The Bible calls it lament. And as we read our psalm for this morning, just want to invite us to consider what does it look like to lament? What does it look like to have godly misery? So if you're able and comfortable, we'd invite you to stand as we read Psalm 42. Starting in verse 1, it says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears... have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. My salvation in my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan, of Hermon, from Mount Mitzar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? because of the oppression of the enemy. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The very words of our God. Let's pray. 
Lord God, what a privilege it is to know you. Lord, I feel very helpless in this moment. I don't feel up to the task. My soul pants for you. Lord, thank you that you use us in spite of us. I pray that you would do that now. I pray, Lord, that as I speak to the ear, you would speak to the heart and transform lives in all of these homes that are scattered. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. In the early 1900s, coal miners were trying to manage through the dangers of their profession. They had to manage dangerous equipment. They had to safeguard against cave-ins. They were in these mines trying to do their job and trying to stay safe. But the danger that was most of all that they had to navigate through was the danger of carbon monoxide poisoning. You see, this poisonous gas is odorless and colorless, so virtually undetectable if you are breathing it in. And as these coal miners were working, they had to figure out how to detect what seems undetectable. And so they decided to use canaries. They would take these little birds, put them in cages, and set them beside them as they were working because canaries are particularly sensitive to air quality. So if there was poison being released into the air, they would feel it and sense it much faster than the coal miners. And so if the canary stopped flying around, the workers took notice. If the canary stopped tweeting, the coal miners took notice. If the canary keeled over, they knew that that means we need to vacate immediately. Because they were looking to the canaries as a signal for a danger that was going on in their profession. So they used the canaries to look for the deeper issues of their lives. One of the reasons why I love the book of Psalms is because the book of Psalms helps God's people look for the deeper issues of their lives. These Psalms are, are sung to God, they're prayers to God, and they help us to connect, not just to God, but to ourselves. A scholar once wrote, the Psalms present human persons in situations of regression when they are most vulnerable and hurt, when they are most sensitized to life and driven to the extremities of life and faith. The Psalms sensitize us to our human reality. They connect us. In the Psalms, they span the wide range of emotions. You cannot feel something without it being found in the Psalms, and lament is part of that. 
But it's not just part of that. Lament psalms are the largest genre of any of the psalms. What that means is you will find lament more than you'll find celebration. You'll find lament more than you'll see repentance and praise. So the Psalms, a major purpose of them is to connect us with the reality of suffering and pain. To learn how to be honest about it. Dr. Sung Chang Ra, he writes this in his book, Prophetic Lament, that lament is honesty before each other and God. If something has truly been declared dead, there is no use in sugarcoating that reality. To hide from suffering and death would be an act of denial. So what is lament? I, I, would, I would define lament as expressions of helplessness without succumbing to feelings of hopelessness. That, that when you lament, you look at suffering, you look at pain, but if you really look at it as you should, the response is, I cannot manage this. I can't handle it. I can't control it. It is over my head. It is overwhelming, and I feel helpless. Yet we do not grieve as those without hope. That we do not rest our hope on circumstance and what is over our head because we look beyond suffering into someone who is greater than any suffering or pain that we could ever experience. So what does lament look like? Psalm 42 is a wonderful example of lament. One of the most well-known lament psalms. And I want to take a few minutes to just walk through this psalm and consider what lament should look like. And as we do so, I just want to start with asking you a question. Are you in denial right now? And I mean that differently from are you in delusion? Because to be delusional is to refuse to believe the reality of suffering. But to be in denial is to refuse to acknowledge the reality of suffering. You will say the suffering is there, but you want to push it aside or push it down and hide it away. And in these few minutes together, I just want to invite you to bring all of that to your acknowledgement. See it and look at it. Which leads me to what I see as lament. When we mean lament, what I mean is three things. One, honest attunement, humble expression, hopeful assurance. These three things make up lament. Honest attunement. If you look in the Psalm, look at verse three. It says, my tears have been my food day and night. If you can continue looking, you, you see in five and, and verse six that uh, the psalmist is saying, my, my soul is downcast within me. My soul is in turmoil. He is attuned to himself. When I say attunement, it means a focused attention on emotion. He says, my tears have been my food. And, and, and what's happening here is what uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls spiritual depression. Have you ever been so low that you can't muster the energy to eat? 
Have you ever been so low that tears are flowing down your face, so much so that it drips into your mouth as though they're trying to feed you? That's what's happening with this psalm writer. That he feels and sees the injustice and the suffering and the pain. And he says, all I have to cling to is my own tears. He starts off the psalm by saying, I'm panting. I'm thirsty. When you are honestly attuned, what's happening is you're committed to seeing and staying with suffering and pain. You're committed to seeing and staying with suffering and pain. And that's counterintuitive, unnatural, isn't it? Because when we feel pain, we want to move away from it. If I stub my toe, I don't keep my toe by the corner of the coffee table. When I put my hand on a hot stove, I I don't leave my hand on the stove. I, I pull it away. If I fall and break my arm, I don't just fall and leave my arm there. I I recoil and I pull it. What do you do when your soul is in pain? How do you pull away? Do you withdraw? Do you numb yourself? Do you isolate? You try to escape. And for many of us, that's where we are. That's why we're pouring ourselves into binge watching Netflix. We're pouring ourselves into nonstop scrolling in our social media. We're pouring ourselves into comfort foods, pouring ourselves into video games. Or more troubling, we're pouring ourselves into alcohol, pouring ourselves into drugs and pornography. And you're doing all of these things because you just want to get away from the pain. But hear me when I say, you cannot stop the pain until you look at the wounds. There's a difference between pain and wounds. Lots of people are in pain, but not all of those people in pain actually know their wounds. They don't know the source of their pain. When you go to the doctor and you have this pain, the doctor will ask questions trying to find an understanding, trying to locate where the pain is coming from. He's giving attention to the pain, but he's looking for the wounds. Can you give attention to your pain? When's the last time you spent 15 minutes just alone by yourself. I'm not talking about with music. I'm not talking about reading a book. I'm not talking about in nature. I'm not talking about driving. I'm talking about just you and silence and your pain. Honest attunement, attention. Secondly, lament means humble expression. Humble expression. Verse 3 We see him end that verse by saying, my enemies say to me all the day long, where is your God? We see it again later on. Verse 10, where is your God? And verse 9, he says, 
I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? He's expressing a lot here. And what's going on is the psalm writer is saying, I feel alone, I feel abandoned, I feel forgotten, but not only do I feel that, I look like it. Like people, the world is looking at me and saying, you look pitiful. These onlookers are, are looking at this psalm writer as he's suffering in his pain and what they're essentially saying here, I don't understand. It doesn't make sense how you can be in the presence of suffering and pain and the presence of God at the same time. That's the great struggle, is it not? Many of my atheist friends, that's the choking point for them. That they cannot reconcile the concept of an all-loving, all-powerful God and suffering and evil. Where is your God? And I don't have time to to chase this rabbit trail, uh, but we want to commend to you uh, Ravi Zacharias. Dr. Zacharias, he passed away recently, and he was one of the most prominent defenders of the Christian faith in all of the world. In one of his last interviews before he passed away, he was asked about this so-called dilemma of a good, loving, powerful God and suffering and evil. And he basically says that this can be a dilemma if you don't also understand that God is all-wise and eternal. Meaning... He understands that dynamic way better than you do. And are you leaning on your wisdom when you know you're not all wise and you know you're not eternal? Do you really trust that authority? So go check him out. He's got a lot of stuff there. That is a valid question and concern if you're wrestling with that. But what we see with the psalm writer is that he's expressing his feelings in relation to the suffering. Why have you forsaken me? And what's interesting about this psalm writer is that this psalm writer is of the sons of Korah. And the sons of Korah or the Korahites were commissioned in 1 Chronicles 6 to be the worship leaders, the choir masters in the temple in Jerusalem. What that means is that they were in charge of ushering people into the presence of God. And it's this psalm writer, this worship leader that says, I am abandoned. What do you do when the worship leader doesn't feel the presence of God? And I can imagine some of you want to react quickly to that. I want to fix the theology of this psalm writer. He's got it all wrong. Imagine you want to come to him and say, of course you're not forsaken. God says, the Bible says he will never leave you nor forsake you. He says that he's with you until the ends of the earth. He says if you ascend to the heavens, he is there. If you go down to the depths of hell, he is there. Of course you're not forsaken. Of course you're not abandoned. I just want to encourage you, this is scripture. So the psalm writer is, is not committing blasphemy. Can you imagine what that would look like if you were in a prayer meeting? You circle up and ask somebody to pray, and they say, God, I'm tired. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Amen. That'd probably be awkward. You probably haven't been part of prayer meetings like that. 
Yet we see this kind of expression coming out of the Psalms. Why not be quick to rescue out of that? Which as a side note, let me just say, if you are in relation with someone that you know is suffering, don't try to fix it or don't try to fix them. Give space. The ministry of presence sometimes speaks louder than a Bible study. So how is this not blasphemy to say, why have you forsaken me, Lord? It's because of what this means that he's saying it. Because what's essentially happening here is that the psalm writer is saying, I feel abandoned, I feel alone, but I'm taking it to God. What he's saying here is that my feelings are true, but God's promises are truer. And so I, though I don't feel it, I'm going to take this to God. Because the reality is we all at times feel abandoned. We do. We all at times feel alone. And that's where sin manifests itself. Do you really think Adam and Eve would have eaten of the fruit if they really understood that God was with them? Do you, do you think that Abraham would have slept with Hagar if he would, would have really understood God's promises? Do you think that David would have committed adultery with Bathsheba and killed her husband if he really understood God was with him? What do you do when you feel alone? What do you do when you feel forsaken? What's happening here is the psalm writer is expressing his truth. I know that's a very interesting phrase these days. He's expressing his truth, but he's submitting it to the capital T truth. But I want to be careful here because expression is right. God wants his people. If you have questions, if you have doubts, if you have all these things, give it to the Lord. But want to be careful here that you don't express in a way that you think you're on the same level as God. You, you do need humility. It's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 9 when, when he says in verse 20, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Can the creation say to the creator, why have you made me this way? And he gives that, that rhetorical question to show what Isaiah 55 says, and that his ways and his thoughts are higher than ours. And if we come to him to express and to question, we must come to him understanding that he is higher. That he is all wise. Humble expression. Thirdly, we must have hopeful assurance. Hopeful assurance. So the lament psalms, uh, most of them, they all, they, most of them have a pivot somewhere in the psalm. Uh, that that they, they pivot towards the Lord. So they, they, they express suffering, they express pain, they express sorrow, but then they look beyond the suffering and the pain and the sorrow and they put their hope in God. And we see this in Psalm 42. Verse 5, it, it says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him. Verse 11, hope in God, for I shall again praise him. 
So what's happening here is that the psalm writer understands that God does not just take me to suffering, he takes me through suffering. That when you are in God in Christ, you understand that your suffering is not your final destination. That at all times, God is working towards justice. He's working towards restoration. He's working towards wronging all the rights. And we set our hope there, not in the circumstances. How do we accomplish this? Well, we'd encourage you to look at verse 7. You have to understand that God is sovereign. Sovereign is just a churchy word that says God is in control. Look how the psalm writer says it. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. The psalmist is saying, I'm overwhelmed, I'm overtaken, that the waves are crashing over me, the waterfalls are crashing over me, the breakers are crashing over me, they are overwhelming me, but they're yours. They're yours. And if they're yours, I understand that your hand is in it. And if your hand is in it, it will not destroy me. This is my father's world. Let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, he is the ruler yet. Trusting his sovereignty, but also we, we trust that God is who he says he is in our life. Sprinkled throughout the psalm, you see the language of how the psalmist talks about God. He calls him God, my God. God of my life, my rock, my salvation, the living God. That's who he's speaking to. And he uses those words as an expression of where I'm resting ultimately. And it goes back to the attitude of verse one. That he says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so, so, so my soul pants for you, and I'm, my, my soul is thirsty. But what is he thirsty for? What is he panting for? It's for God. That the psalmist, he sees and he feels the pain and the suffering, but he says the solution is, I need God. It's the difference between coming to God with your hand out versus coming to God with your hands up. When you, when you come to God with your hands out, you're looking for his stuff. And his stuff is good. But, but when you come to God with your hands up, you say, I want God. Everything else is less than. When my daughter, when she sees me playing with my phone and listening to music, she'll run to me with her hands out because she wants my phone. When I'm eating a snack and my daughter sees, she, she runs to me and holds her hand out because she wants my snack. But when we're out for a walk in the neighborhood and my daughter hears a dog barking in the distance and sees how big and scary the dog is, at that moment, she runs to her father and she doesn't ask for the stuff. She lifts her hands and says, God, Daddy, I want you. She wants her father in that moment. 
she understands intuitively that the stuff is not enough. And so we come to God. And when we lament in hopeful assurance, we come to him ultimately with our hands up to him saying, Lord, nothing else matters. Nothing in this world will do. Jesus, you're the center. Everything revolves around you. And this good father, he responds with your hands up with delight and not dehumanization. Do you want his stuff or do you want him? Hopeful assurance. The Lord is working. The Lord calls us to lament. As Dr. Martin Luther King says, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Everything that is wrong will be made right. But we rest not in the results, we rest in him. Diane Langberg is a world-renowned trauma counselor, and she says this about the need to have the light of Christ that spans the scope of any darkness. She says, I have only found one response to the difficult problems of life, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. For it is there that trauma and God come together. Christ has endured all fears, powerlessness, helplessness, destruction, alienation, silence, loss, and hell. He understands trauma. He willingly entered into trauma for us. He endured humiliation, betrayal, abandonment, nakedness, aloneness, darkness, the silence of God, helplessness, shame, grief, and the loss of all things, including his life. And he did that for us. First, he endured trauma so that we would know we have a God who understands. But think about things you've, you have experienced. See if they are on this list. He bore our grief, carried our sorrow, was hit, full of pain, cut, crushed, and beaten. He was taken away. He was removed from the living. He was despised and abandoned. God was silent. Have you ever felt some of these things? Have they been part of your life too? When you speak with God, remember that he knows. Whatever it is you're going through, whatever it is you're feeling right now, whatever suffering that has confronted you, Jesus knows and he cares. And he took it all on himself. And this does not negate the importance of God's people acting justly, being ambassadors for Christ, but we must start, move, and end with the Lord. For our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. May it be so as we seek to respond to the deeper issues of our lives.
Let's pray. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. While on others thou art calling, do not pass me by, and I'm begging you, Savior, oh, blessed Savior, why don't you hear my humble cry while on others thou art calling Savior do not pass me by